By the way, let me do something. I got so excited, I just totally messed up and realized that, Jody, I didn't tell you how to give because we don't take up the offering. So <laughs> let me kind of do that. And nobody even told me. I was just so puffed up about those guys getting baptized, I didn't know what to do. I actually led John. We led John. I led John to Christ. Mike and I did about a month ago. And, and you know, sometimes it takes and sometimes it doesn't. And I looked on the sheet and found out John was getting baptized. And I ran up to the baptist while ago and hugged. I was just so excited about John. I just forgot. So, if you would like to obey the Lord and if you would like to give, there's two ways to do that, guys. Help me out here. Okay, we can pull that up. I hope we can do it. Oh, can we do it? Okay, where is it? Okay, here it is. I'm sorry. So it's crosspointchurch.com slash giving. Okay, that's one way to do Go to the website. Or you can text, I think, 678-582-8180. Okay, if you would do that, that would be great. Now, no war is without its casualties and controversies. We know that because of the anniversary, unfortunately, that we celebrated yesterday. In fact, I was talking to some folks today. Almost every one of you in here were old enough. You know exactly where you were when 9-11 hit. And when, we, when the war came, we knew there would be casualties and controversies. And there's no city that's a better example than that, than a city you may not have heard of called Dresden, Germany. Now, if you're a World War II vet or you know your history, you know about it. If you don't, let me give you some background. In World War II, over the city of Dresden, more than 1,250 bombers from the United States and Great Britain dropped 3,900 tons of high explosives and incendiary bombs on this beautiful city. They killed 25,000 people, many of them innocent civilians. They destroyed 1,600 acres of some of the most beautiful cultural and historical artifacts and architecture in all of Europe. But one of the buildings that was decimated was a famous church in Europe called the Dresden Frauenkirche. That means church. It was a Protestant church that was built in the 11th century as a missionary church. That church had stood for over a thousand years before the bombing. And then when they bombed it, that church reached a temperature of a thousand degrees, and it was decimated. Now, this is a picture of the uh, bombed out building right here. This is the picture the, uh, of the, uh, the bombed out building, and, and, and then the original church. This was the original church that was there. So, you've got this church, and it was stood for 1,100 years, and then it's bombed out. And when I looked at those two pictures, I thought to myself, you know, that's where the church is today. Just think about the bombs that have been dropped on the church just in the last two or three years. We all know about the COVID bomb that was dropped right in 2020 and shut the church down for the first time probably in its history over most of the world. And we shut down voluntarily. And then there's the culture bomb that seemingly at every turn is being dropped on the church and is going against the grain of what we believe God's Word teaches, what is true and what is right. There's the criticism bomb of the church. We're under more criticism than we've ever been, some rightly justified, some not. That cold hammer swings hard either way. But there's a big bomb. I think it's the biggest bomb of all that's been dropped on the church. And it actually had been falling for a long time before covid I call it the coldness bomb, the apathy, the indifference, the uncaring, the malaise across the church everywhere. Now, I'm going to be very frank and very honest in this message. To talk in financial terms, terms, if the church 
was a publicly held corporation right now, it would be a hard sell. If the church were a publicly held corporation, your financial advisor would probably say, I think there's better places you could put your money. I think there's better stock out there that you can buy. Why would we say that? Because fewer people are attending the church in America than ever in our history. It seems like every new generation finds more reasons to defect from the church. And today, people are even struggling to see a need for the church. Why do I need to come to church? Why do I need to get into a building? Why do I need to even spend my time that way? And I'll be very honest. I have never seen so much discouragement among pastors in my own ministry. And I'm one of them. I'm not whining. I'm not griping, moaning, or complaining. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But it's discouraging. It's, it's, it's an uphill slog. And about the time you say, you know, I've been in this long enough. I just, just maybe just need to step away. I just need to go. Let somebody else fight the battle. I see this light at the end of the tunnel. And that light is Jesus. And that light never goes out. Yeah, give the Lord a hand. Give the Lord a hand. That light never goes out. So I want to go back to that church in Dresden that was destroyed. It remained in rubble for almost 48 years. Then some people got together and said, you know what? We need to rebuild this church. This is the picture of that church today. Well, that too reminds me of the church. Not its current state, but its future hope. Because let me tell you the great news. It, it still gets me fired up to come to work every day. At the end of the day, this church is not my church. At the end of the day, this church is not your church. At the end of the day, this church is not our church. This church belongs to Jesus. And the church is not ours. It's his. And here's the good news. Jesus is in the building business. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Now, if you believe that, let me tell you what that means. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're in the building business. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're in the building business. If we're going to be what Jesus wants us to be, we've got to start building together. So we can do one of two things. We can look at the church that seems to be crumbling right before our eyes, and we can do the normal thing, moan, groan, gripe, complain, cry in our soup, throw in the towel. Or you know what we can do? We can say, I don't care what the culture is doing. I don't care where the criticism is coming from. I don't care what COVID has done. It is time to pick up a hammer, get some nails, and go back to work and rebuild what we know God wants us to do. Now, all that said, buckle your seatbelt. That brings us to one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world. He didn't get enough credit, as a matter of fact. He's one of the greatest builders. As a, he, he pulled off, if you're in the building business, you'll love this. He pulled off one of the most amazing reconstruction projects of all time about 2,500 years ago. If you don't know who this guy is, his name was Nehemiah. And if you brought a copy of God's Word, I want to look at a copy of God's Word. Go to the Old Testament. I'm going to take you right to the book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. I want you to turn to Nehemiah. God put into the heart of Nehemiah to do something that any consultant would have said to Nehemiah, you are out of your mind. Have you lost it? That cannot be done. You are attempting the impossible. You're about to waste a big part of your life because God had said to him, Nehemiah, I want you to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. 
It is time to rise up and build. And by the way, he faced some of the same obstacles that the church faces today, but I made up my mind by the grace of God, I am determined today to be a Nehemiah. And I am determined with God's help to call out a bunch of Nehemiahs out of our church and say, let's start building together. And so I am calling on today every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, it is time to pick up your hammer, put on your work clothes, and report for duty. We need to build together. Now, as we do this, I want to share with you three things we're going to have to do, but we're going to have to do it together or we will fail. Number one, together, we must confront our opposition. Together, we must confront our opposition. Now, every time I read the story of Nehemiah, my heart goes out to Nehemiah because he had to climb two huge mountains. There was this mountain of an impossible job, and there was a mountain of this immovable opposition. Let me tell you about the job he had to face. God said to Nehemiah, I want you to rebuild the wall. Now, you may think, well, rebuilding a wall wouldn't be that big a deal. Well, it was this time because the length of the wall, are you ready for this, was two and a half miles. It would normally, it normally would have taken years to complete, but it gets worse. When Nehemiah decided to accept the job, he already knew several things were true. Okay, Lord, I've got no money. I've got no manpower. I've got no momentum. And in fact, the only person in the world that was excited about doing it was Nehemiah. Even his old wife didn't want him to do it. His family didn't care. He was the only one that had any passion to do it. And yet, you know what this guy did? He not only pulled it off, he did it ahead of schedule, and he did it under budget. But it wasn't easy. You know why? Because except for Nehemiah in the beginning, nobody wanted the wall rebuilt. I mean, everybody was against it. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. I pastored a long time. And if you stick around the church very long, you're going to find two kinds of people. People who are born again and people who are born against. They're in the church. Born again, born against. Some people have the spiritual gift of criticism. And I, I mean, and let me just tell you, I defy anybody to go back in history, find any great work that's ever been done that was ever worth anything that did not have opposition, that did not have criticism. And I don't have to tell you folks today, you know it. There are certain hot topics out there today that if you dress them biblically, if you don't bow down to the throne of public opinion and political correctness and cultural consensus, you better strap on your Kevlar. Because I'm telling you, the bullets are going to start fly flying. And, and so, let me just make sure you understand something. Some people think this sometimes, and I, I want to correct it if you think this. I am not looking to fight people. I, I'm not looking to go out of my way to anger people and get roasted on social media or have people march against our church or anything like that. 
But you know, sometimes it happens even when you're not looking for it. It just, it just comes. But I read something the other day that a former airport, airplane, uh, Air Force pilot once said. I thought this was so good. Here's what he said. If you're not taking flack, you're not over the target. That's a great statement. If you're not taking flack, you're not over the target. He's right, because today if you stand up and you say, you know what? I'm going to share truth. I'm going to speak truth. I'm going to stand for truth. You are going to face intimidation. You're going to face ostracization. As a matter of fact, one of the great weapons critics use, and they use it today, is what Nehemiah had to face. Listen to this. It says, he ridiculed the Jews. So today, take any hot topic. If you even open this book, don't even, you don't have to say anything. Just open this book. Here's what you'll hear. You're on the wrong side of history. They'll look at us and say, you're behind the times. And then they'll get real personal. Oh, you're bigoted. You're phobic. You're illiterate. You're ignorant. You're fundamentalist. You're mean-spirited. Because we're living in a day and age today when if you don't like some, what somebody says, just call them bad names. Just question their character. Because that's so much easier than trying to listen to what they're saying and trying to engage in their viewpoints. But the truth of the matter is, when you're doing God's will, when you're preaching God's word, when you're performing God's work, the first thing we've got to remember is who our opposition is. Because sometimes we confuse who we think our opposition is with who our opposition really is. I read the other day about a dog. And this dog was always getting into fights. And then almost every time he got into a fight, he always just got beaten up to a pulp, got the short end of the stick. Well, a friend was talking to the dog's owner one day, and he said, you know, I've been watching your dog. Man, your dog gets in a fight every day, and he just, just, just torn to pieces almost every day. He said, I, I'll just be honest with you, man. He said, your dog's not much of a fighter. And his owner said, oh, no, he is a great fighter. He's just a poor judge of dogs. Now, <laughs> we need to remember who our opposition is when it comes to building the church, because here's what a lot of people get confused. A lot of pastors get confused, and they're not fighting the right battle. Listen to me carefully. The primary opposition to the church is not people. It's not politicians. It's not the press. We got three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's our opposition, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And frankly, we shouldn't really worry about anybody else. I cannot tell you how many times, I did just this past week, I cannot tell you how many times I turned down press interviews. I got, a, I, I got a request this past week, one of the largest news organizations in America wanted me to take on it. And what, it wasn't that I'm not afraid to take on the topic, it's not that. But I knew the way it was going to be phrased, it's going to be a no-win situation. And, and, and there are just times you got to, you know, wait a minute, this is not really the battle where I need to fight it. We need to remember who our real opposition is, not worry about anybody else. I, I read this the other day, this, I love this story because I'm a pastor. There was a godly pastor and he was doing a great job, but there were two people in the church who couldn't stand him. And the reason they didn't like him is because he stood for truth. And he would take on controversial topics. And he just preached the truth. And they didn't like what he said. So one day they, they came to him and they said, the Pastor, uh, we've been thinking about it. And we think that uh, you don't any longer need to be the pastor of this church. And we think that uh, you, you, you ought to resign. We're asking you to resign. And he said, what? And he said, yeah, we, we think you're done here and you need to resign. And he said, well, thanks for coming. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I will take what you said back to the Lord, and I'm going to pray over it. And he said, I'll get back to you next week. 
So the next week they came to the pastor's office and they met. The pastor said, hey, I took what you two guys said to the Lord. And they said, okay, what did the Lord say? He said, the Lord said he'd never heard of either one of you guys. Now, I, I want, listen, I want to make something plain. The church is not above criticism. I am not above criticism. We are not above criticism. But here's what I will tell you. If we spend our time battling critics instead of building walls, we'll never get anything accomplished. And at the end of the day, you can listen to critics. You can learn from critics. We ought to love the critics, but don't look to the critics and don't live with the critics. Together, together, we must confront our opposition. Number two, together, we must concentrate on our opportunity. We must concentrate on our opportunity. Now, the question is not, are we going to have opposition? We are. The question is not, are we going to get criticism? We will. The question is, how are we going to respond to it? Because it doesn't matter where the opposition comes from. It doesn't matter how the opposition comes. The question we've always got to be asking is this question, and it's a hard one, but we have to ask it. Are we going to focus on the opposition against us? Or are we going to focus on the opportunity before us? Now, let me keep in mind, I want you to keep in mind what's going on about this project. Jerusalem had been in disrepair for 140 years. For 140 years, the people that had come back from exile, the people that had come back to Israel, every day they had a reminder of what a failure they were. Every day they had a reminder of, you know, how futile it must be to even believe in God or trust in God. God's people had been scattered, but now they're returning and they come back to what? The temple's been restored, had to be rebuilt. The economy's in disarray. The people are discouraged. The walls are in ruin. Because you see, today, we don't build walls around cities. Today, we build malls around cities. But back in the day, they built walls around cities. Because the very existence of a city depended upon strong walls. A city had to be fortified. So the first line of defense was a wall that would encircle a city that would allow the people to live in safety so they didn't have to worry at night about being attacked and robbed and pillaged. Because broken down walls, listen, broken down walls is a picture of broken down people. And God said, Nehemiah, we'll never rebuild the people if we don't rebuild the walls. And if Jerusalem's ever going to get back on its feet, the walls had to be rebuilt. Now, it doesn't really matter to the world or to the flesh or to the devil. They don't care how the church stops working. They don't care how the church quits focusing on its opportunity. They just want it just to stop. So we've got this opposition. And when you read the whole story, you'll find that, first of all, they tried what we saw, defamation. You're this, you're that, you're a bad person, you know, you're not really a Christian, blah, 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 blah. Defamation. Then it was intimidation. We're going to kill you, going to kill your family, going to take you out. That didn't work. So then they tried, and this is so slick, they tried negotiation. So we're in chapter 6, verse 1. When word came to Samballat, Tobiah, Geshep, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it. So he's got the wall rebuilt. Though up to that time, I had not set the doors in the gates. We'll come back to that. That's a big deal. Samballat and Geshep sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. All right, you got these three guys, right? You got Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Let me tell you an easy way to remember who they were. Okay, that's the Hebrew. Here's the English. Larry, Mo, 
Curly Joe. All right, you got these three guys. You got Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshe. They are a trinity of trouble. They've done everything they can to discourage the work, to destroy the workers. Nothing has worked. So they seem, it seems like they do not only a harmless thing, but they, really a good thing. They say to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, why don't you do this? Take a break. T take a vacation. Quit, quit doing what you're doing, and let's just talk. In other words, what they were trying to do, they were trying to change his focus. Well, why is that such a big deal? Because notice, even though the wall had been rebuilt, and there was no gap in the wall, Nehemiah still needed to hang the doors and the gates. Why? Because the city would not be safe and secure until the, you know, until the project was finished. You can build the strongest house in the world with the best alarm system in the world. But if you don't have any doors and you don't have any locks, what good is the house? It's absolutely no good. He said, I'm not done. We've got the walls, but I've got to hang the doors and I've got to hang the gates. So Nehemiah knows exactly what they're trying to do. You're trying to get my focus over what I need to be doing. You're trying to change what my priorities here. I once heard a missionary say this. He said, God wants you focused. The devil wants you finished. God wants you focused. The devil wants you finished. Now, um, well, I hate to do this, but it's what you pay me to do. So he's trying to get you know, Nehemiah off his game, right? No, trying to get him off his game. And one of the biggest hindrances we face in the church today, in fact, it may be the biggest one I face as a pastor, is not opposition. It's not criticism. It's distraction. You say, Pastor, what, what's the biggest problem any church faces today to get the church back on track? Can I just be very kind and honest, but sweet and nice and truthful? It is the indifference of a lot of church people. For too many church people, it's just another option. If there's anything else going on on Sunday, it's a little bit better. We just, now I'm not coming. No big deal. I'm just not going to show up. I mean, we're living in a day when even some of our most faithful people only come when it's convenient, when they don't have anything else to do. Treat Sunday like any other day. If it's pretty at the lake, they're at the lake. If it's raining, they sleep in. If it's a tennis league or a golf match calling, as soon as they hear the horn, they're out. Now, I want to make this something again plain. I don't talk about this much. I'm not a pharisaical legalist. I don't, keep, I don't keep attendance. I don't take names. I don't take numbers. And I do not believe it's an unpardonable sin occasionally to miss church. That is not where I'm going at all. But I do not believe the church is just another option. I believe the church is an opportunity to invest your life in something that will reap eternal rewards and give other people eternal benefits. And that's why I love Nehemiah's response so very much. Listen to how he responds. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. I love that. That's what I call sanctified smart aleck. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? So I'm going to say this now, this next statement, as strongly as I know how to say it. There is no greater work than God's work. And there's no greater place to do God's work than God's church. There is no greater work than God's work. And there's no greater place to do God's work than God's 
church. I just want to say a word to some people out there right now. We got people right now volunteering in our preschool ministry. They're taking care of babies and, and, and little preschool kids. Can I just say something? You're doing a great work. Don't come down. We've got people teaching in our children's ministry, teaching your kids and my kids to love Jesus and trust God and believe God's Word. You are doing a great work. Don't come down. To those in our next-gen ministry, in our adult ministry, people out there who park cars, open doors, give a friendly smile to people, you're doing a great work. Don't come down. To people that come here on Wednesday and Saturday work in our Caring Point ministry, get out in that hot sun and greet people and talk to people and love people and pray for people and give the gospel to people, you are doing a great work. Don't come down. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You may, you're thinking, you know, let's wait a minute. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Doc. What is so great about putting up, finishing a wall? I mean, what is the big deal about putting up some doors and some gates? Well, you know what? You've asked a, really a bigger question than that. So I'm going to ask you a question, let you think about it for 10 seconds. What makes a work a great work? What makes any work a great work? I mean, I, I would hope you would say, I would hope you care enough about your own life. Since you only get to go around once, I would hope you care enough to say, when I get through with my life and I stand before God, I want God to say to me, you did a great work. Amen. Well, then what makes a great work? If you don't write down anything else I say or remember anything else I say, I want you to write this down and I want you to remember this. Any work is a great work if it is the work that God has called you to do if it fulfills his purpose for your life and accomplishes his plan for this world. That is a great work. Every work that God calls you to do is a great work in his eyes. And by the way, some of you pastors out there that tape me and watch me, there's no such thing as big churches and little churches. They're just God's churches. Every work is a great work. That little old country preacher out there in, in, in the Possum Creek Baptist Church, in the middle of nowhere that nobody ever hears about. He runs 50 people in church, but he's been there and week after week and day after day and month after month and year after year. He buries the dead and marries the young. He shares the gospel with people who are lost and preaches the word. You're doing a great work. Don't come down. Every work that you do that God's called you to do is a great work. And this is something I say so often, but a lot of you still don't believe me. I don't care whether you have college or not. I don't care if you have a PhD like me or you didn't finish high school. I don't care if you make $500,000 a year, you make minimum wage. I don't care. God has put every one of us in here to make an eternal difference in this life. And you ought to be doing that in your home, in your workplace. But I'm telling you, there's no greater place than the church. Yes, it's true. The opposition has never been greater, but the opportunity has never been better. So together, we must concentrate on our opportunity. The fields are still white under harvest. And God's house is still not full. And we need to compel people to come in. So together, we must confront our opposition because it is coming and it is here. But together, we must concentrate on our opportunity. We've got a great shot to do some great things for God. So finally, together... We must complete our objective. We must complete our objective. Now, what was the ultimate objective that Nehemiah was trying to accomplish? You know, this is what a lot of people, they read the book of Nehemiah, and they don't, ever, they don't even really get what's going on. Nehemiah wasn't just trying to rebuild a wall 
or hang a door or a gate. He wouldn't even try to protect the city. Do you know why God wanted all this done? He wanted to provide a launching pad where God's people could be on mission, bringing other people to God. You know, one thing hasn't changed. Our objective hasn't changed. COVID won't change it. Culture won't change it. Criticism won't change it. The coldness of our own people won't change it. Here's our objective. We want to point people to Jesus and inspire them to live the cross-shaped life. That's what we do day by day. That's why I had four workers at my house this week to do some work on our home. Two are from El Salvador, one from Brazil, one from Mexico. They don't speak very good English, and I don't speak hardly any Spanish. But I got a brother in my church named Victor, and he's great in Spanish. So we fed these guys Chick-fil-A sandwiches one day last week, and I had Victor come and translate, shared the gospel, and two of those men at my kitchen table asked Christ to come into their heart. Now, let me just tell you, listen. No, no, no. I'm not patting myself on the back. Listen to me. You can do that. You can do that. You've got the gospel. You've got the Spirit of God in you. You've got a testimony. You ought to have a one. We've got to complete our objective. So let's go back and notice what Nehemiah did from the very beginning of the project. We're wrapping this up. By the way, I'm fired up. Listen. <laughs> Nehemiah 4, listen to this. From that day on, they're, they're, we're back to rebuilding the walls. Half of my men did the work. While the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind the, all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Here's what Nehemiah does. He posts a watch. He sets up an around-the-clock 24-hour guard to make sure that both the work and the workers were protected. Then he makes another wise decision. Listen to this. Each of the builders wore a sword at his side at his, as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Let me tell you what I'm doing. I am sounding the trumpet today. And I'm asking you to show up. Come back. Find your place of service. Get involved in the work of the church Find somebody, get a one and somebody to share the gospel with. So he sets up this alarm system. And in case of an attack, a trumpet would blow. And reinforcements would immediately come to that part of the wall. In other words, he was, here's what he knew. It's the same thing I know. One of the keys to success is everybody has got to be looking out for each other. I cannot do this alone. Our staff cannot do this alone. Our deacons cannot do this alone. Our small group leaders cannot do this alone. Our worship team cannot do this alone. People who are serving right now in all areas of our ministry cannot do it alone. We need each other. We've got to do this together. And we need people all in. They were in it together. And every, listen, everybody pulled their share of the load. And I, and I want you to see something else. They weren't just doing this for God. They weren't just doing this for other people. Now we're going to really drop a hammer. Listen to what Nehemiah said in chapter 4, verse 14. Listen. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Now listen to this. And fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your home. If you are a parent or a grandparent, 
I want you to stand up right now. You're a parent or a grandparent. I want you to stand up right now. Just remain standing for just a moment. I got a word for all of us. I'm a grandparent. So I got a word for all of us standing up right now. You better wake up and realize you're in a fight for your family. You're in a fight for your children. You're in a fight for your grandchildren. It's coming from the world of education. It's coming from the world of entertainment. It's coming from the world of social media. There are people out there that are determined to lead your children away from God, away from the church, away from righteousness, away from truth. And I'm not overstating the case. We are in a fight for the family. So I'm sounding an alarm right now. The church needs your family, and your family needs the church. The church needs your family, and your family needs the church. You can be seated. We're surrounded on every side. We're in a fight, and we've got to have each other's backs. We need to be locked arm to arm. We need to have our place on the wall and in the church doing everything we can to lead our families to be all that God wants them to be. And what breaks my heart is so many moms and dads aren't even showing up for the battle. They're asleep in the barracks. They don't realize, they, they don't even realize what's going on. They've gone AWOL, and it's time to re-enlist. That's why when you walked in the worship center today, you were given a bag. We're not going to leave you holding the bag, but you were given a bag. And it was labeled, build together. Everything in that bag is designed for you to, to do this. Take your place on the wall, get your hammer, get your nail, and go to work for the glory of God. There's an instruction that will tell you exactly how to use every item. So I want to challenge you for our next season of ministry at Crosspoint. I want you to do this. Go visit this website. Go build buildcp.org. Just write that down right now. Do it when you get home. Go build, go buildcp.org. Here's what I want, you, I want you to do that. Go sign up, and over the next four weeks, you're going to get a communication from me once a week. Not a big one, but it's going to be an, something that will inspire you. It will bless you. It will challenge you, and it will show you how you can make an eternal difference just in your very own home. Now, the conclusion of the story. It's a simple sentence. And if you read this book, if you're not careful, you'll just miss it. You'll just kind of go over it like a speed bump, but it's not. We read this in chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elah in 52 days. Archaeologists have unearthed a part of Nehemiah's wall. If you ever go to meet Israel, you'll get to see it. They've unearthed part of this wall. Listen to this. I told you that the wall was two and a half miles long. You ready for this? It was 10 feet wide and 12 feet high. Imagine that. Two and a half miles, 10 feet wide, 12 feet tall, and it's finished in 52 days. And 2,500 years later, people like you and me still get to go and see a wall that is still standing. Why? Because some people said, we're not going to cry in our soup, we're not going to moan, we're not going to groan, we're not going to rub our hands and give up on God and give up on the church. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to come together, we're going to commit together, and we're going to construct together. And we can do what they did because the God that helped them is the God that helps us. So we're going to wrap this up. What would have happened if Nehemiah had given up? What would have happened if the people had said, out of indifference, out of fear, out of apathy, no, price is too high. 
Cost is too great. Sacrifice is too much. Not only would there not be a wall, an entire book of the Bible wouldn't even be in it. And we would have never even known Nehemiah's name. So yes, today I am sounding the trumpet to everybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus. It is not time to give up. It is time to get up. It is time to get a hammer. It's time to get some nails. It's time for some of you to find your place on the wall and help us build together. And by the way, nobody in history faced more opposition and more obstacles to the work that God called him to do than Jesus. Think about it. Everybody was against Jesus. The religious world, the political world, the military world, the satanic spiritual world, everything they could to sidetrack him. But you know what Jesus did? He kept his eyes on a cross. He concentrated on his opportunity. He completed the objective. And because he completed his objective, we're sitting in a church today. So here's the point, And then I'll say amen. Today is not about you coming back on one day and thinking you've done God a big favor and you deserve a trophy. Today is about finding your place on the wall every day, every week. Because I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, there is a ladder to climb. There is a nail to hammer. There is a wall to build. Let's get started for the glory of God. Let's pray together. With his bowed and with eyes closed. This is not a rah-rah message. In the name of Jesus, don't walk out and say, man, that was great, that fired me up. Then you just go back to the way you're doing business. We need you. We need you to come and worship and disciple and serve and send. We need you to do that. We need you to come back and get back. We need you to start inviting people and bringing people with you. We need you to start going after your one. We're not going to give up. We're going to get up. And with God's help, we're going to rebuild the walls. And that begins for some of you by becoming a part of the team. So what do you mean? You know who rebuilt the walls? God's people, not lost people, not unsaved people, not unchurched people, God's people. If you're not a child of God, you need to get on the team. Not, you don't need to take up a hammer and a nail yet. You need to go to the one that got nails hammered into his hand so that you could be saved. And if today you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may be in this room right now, you may be watching me by TV or you may be watching me on a computer, if you've never given your heart and life to Jesus, if you would say and just be honest, you know why I'm not a part of the, you know why I don't pick up a hammer? Because I don't have one. I haven't repealed it for duty yet. Would you like to give your life to Christ? Would you like to know that your life can not only last forever and live forever, would you like to know you've got a life that can make an eternal difference while you're here? If you'd say yes, would you do what those two men did in my home this week? Would you do what those two men did that we got baptized today? Would you just simply pray something like this, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I cannot save myself. But Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that God raised you from the dead. I believe you're alive right now. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me. Forgive me of my sins. I repent and turn away from my sins. I give all that I am to all that you are. Now, if you're watching or you're here in this room and you prayed that prayer with me 
going to ask you to do something right now. If you didn't mean it, now forget it. Just go about your business. But you say, oh, no, I did mean it. Pastor, I meant it. I gave my life to Christ. Just now I did. Then I want you to do one of two things. Either go to crosspointchurch.com slash decision. Crosspointchurch.com slash decision. Or you can just text Jesus to 678-255-2566. Do that right now. If you're in this building, here's what I'd like you to do. If you today trusted Christ, or if you trusted Christ, but you've never been biblically baptized, which is the very first thing God expects of a believer, or you say, you know, I've been saved and baptized, but I want to be a part of the church. I want to join the army. I want to put on the uniform. I want to get my hammer and my nail, and I want to take my place on the wall. I want you, when you leave today, go out to a table. It's called Connection Points, right? You can't miss it. You simply go out there, and all you got to do is tell them what your decision is. I gave my life to Christ today. I want to follow Jesus in baptism. I want to join this church. Or if you've got a spiritual need, there are people there that will pray with you. So as I close this prayer, this is my question to all of us. I'm not in this because I'm a pastor. I don't need this job. I can leave tomorrow. I'm in it because I want to spend the rest of my life. I want to die with a hammer in my hand. I want to die with my place on the ladder. Will you join me? Father, in the name of Jesus, may our church realize we have been an army that's asleep in the barracks and it's time to wake up, it's time to get up, and it's time to go to work because there's no greater work than your work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.